0: Because of social media and the internet now, I have seen a lot of women be able to kind of, myself included, sidestep the traditional like business world and just do your own thing, build your own business around your interests and build your own audience. And I haven't run into any barriers there because I'm doing my own thing, people are here for me. And I see a lot of female letterers be more entrepreneurial.
1: Gunn, and welcome to the Future Podcast. Today's guest is an accomplished hand-lettering artist, designer, and founder of Detroit-based studio Hom Sweet Hom. Now, she initially started her career in advertising, working at one of the largest agencies in the world. But what started as a dream job became less and less dreamy over time, and exciting new opportunities were ripe for the taking. In this episode, she and Chris talk about her journey from the ad world into the world of running your own business and how to fight the instinct of doing it all by yourself. Now, if you are an aspiring hand letterer or just curious about how the relationship between artists and agents work, then I think you'll especially enjoy this episode. Also, there's a few swears peppered throughout this one, so heads up if you have kids around. Please enjoy our delightful conversation with Lauren Hom.
2: Well, first, I'm excited to do this uh, podcast with you. And for people who don't know who you are, Lauren. Can you uh, introduce yourself and tell us what you do?
0: Yeah, I'm excited to be here. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Lauren Hom, and I am a hand-lettering artist and designer, uh, art-maker person (laughs) who runs the small creative studio, Hom Sweet Hom. Yeah, I started my career in advertising and found lettering as a passion, and I've been
2: doing it for seven years. How deep into your advertising stint did you find your passion in lettering?
0: You know, I actually found my lettering passion before going into advertising, oh, okay. but I kind of stayed the course. Um, so I'll mm. give you a little backstory on that. I always loved drawing and painting growing up, and I was like the artsy kid, and... I decided to go into advertising to study that uh, in school because it seemed like this perfect intersection between practical and creative i was like oh art directors get to come up with creative ideas for ad campaigns and design stuff that seems cool it seemed a little bit more stable uh, and it was easier to sell my parents on art school through advertising than it was like fine art or illustration and so i did that but senior year of college i picked up a passion for lettering because i had taken some like general typography classes And realized, that was the first time I realized you could draw type. I didn't, before that I was like, oh, it's fonts. That's all you do. And so I picked up this passion, dabbled in it on the side, um, used it in some projects. And I started this Tumblr blog back in 2012. I feel like that's dating myself, talking about Tumblr. And it was called Daily Dishonesty. I had this idea. I was drunk with my girlfriends one night and we realized we lied to ourselves a lot. So Mm -hmm. things like I'll be there in five minutes or, you know, I'm not drinking tonight. We were 21 years old. (laughs) And so I started hand lettering these little white lies. I called it Daily Dishonesty and I just published it a couple times a week and it took off, like caught this weird awesome wave of internet. Mm-hmm. And so my lettering work, even though I was like an ad student, started circulating around the internet. And actually, before I even got my first advertising job, I had landed a book deal for Daily Dishonesty wow. and gotten freelance work. And I'm, yeah, I'm 22 at this point, And I'm just like, what is going on? But the like pragmatic part of me was like, oh, I can't waste this four-year degree and not go into advertising. So I still went into advertising. <laughs>
2: You, you know, you're so pragmatic. You're, you're an artist and a designer, and you think of all the majors you can take advertising, it's the most corporate one where, yeah, yeah I, I have some job security, I think. And despite your early success, now what year is this that you're doing this blog that gets all this notice? I want to. 2012. Kind of... Okay. 2012.
0: Wow, eight okay. years ago. Almost to this day, it was October 2012.
2: Wow. Okay, so before we move on with the story here, I got to ask you about the book. I mean, you said Mm -hmm. you have interest in the book, and I see that you've published your book, so tell me about that process.
0: Yeah, so I remember it was, I think it might have been my 21st or 22nd birthday. Mm -hmm. I got an email after the project had been circulating around the internet for, I guess, a month at this point. got an email from a woman saying she was a literary agent, she saw my work on Pinterest, and she thought that the blog had potential to be a book. And I thought she was just pulling my leg because Mm -hmm. I was like, who the fuck offers a 21-year-old a book deal? Like, this just seems, is it a scam? Like, what's going on?
3: It's a phishing scam.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I hopped on a call with her and it seemed like the real deal. And so she was like, all right, we're going to, we need to get this into a proposal and like basically entice publishers to want to publish this thing. And so she set me up. She was like, okay, we're going to make a proposal and we're going, we need to get the blog more press. And so she helped me pitch pitch the blog to some other media sites, get it featured more places, basically build up a case for yeah. why a publisher should publish this book. Mm-hmm. And we did that for about six months. And then we put together this big, like, I don't know, 30 page PDF proposal. And she shopped it around to her contacts in the publishing industry. And we actually got three offers. And I ended up signing a book deal with Abrams, which is the publishing house in mm-hmm. New York.
2: Okay. And since 2012, how has the book performed for you?
0: Honestly, it was a gift book. And so mm-hmm. it hasn't really performed like in terms of income, okay. anything
3: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> like I got, it was, I signed a $25,000 book deal, which was pretty sweet at wow. 21, right? Holy cow. So there was that, yeah. uh, it had a pretty big audience. I think that's why. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I don't know if the book ever earned out. I get royalty statements. I have a couple different projects. I see. Um, but yeah, for me, it was mostly a like credibility marker. I was like, wow, I can get a book published. Um, I could put it in my portfolio. So in terms of income, that book does not support me whatsoever, Mm -hmm. but it was just really cool and validating to know that my work could be like shared in that way. And I saw my book in Barnes and Noble and Urban Outfitters and that was really cool. So that gave me a lot of confidence, but I still went into advertising, got a full-time job because I really couldn't stomach the idea of quote-unquote wasting a degree
2: yeah okay so we're in 2020 young kids are gonna be like what is barnes and noble but okay oh my barnes and noble it's like it was like my favorite place to go tons of books and so good. i go there and i'm a book nerd i'm a bookworm, so i just go in there and buy random books i never even heard of before so i have to ask you when you see your book on the shelf for the first time as a 20-ish person what, what is the feeling that you get when you see that?
0: I don't even know if I can describe it. It was surreal, mm-hmm, perhaps. I had mm-hmm. my friend take a picture of me yeah. with it. Um, it just felt really good. It felt like, you know, I feel like we get the advice a lot, like, don't seek external validation at all. Like, it should right. all come from yourself. But it felt really good to get that external validation.
2: <laughs> yes, screw that. Big this big is big nice. Big,
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of some external validation. Don't yeah. put all your eggs in that basket. But it felt validating that, oh, there's a market for my work, especially because I had just picked up lettering and put it on the Internet, you know, a year prior.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, did you did you like move the book up into a more prominent position, <laughs> stack it up real nice and just make sure it's like real, well represented?
0: You know, every place I saw it, it was well well enough represented, so okay. I didn't
2: okay. move it. Okay. I know some
0: authors will go in and, like, sign some copies, but you have yeah. to, like, ask the front desk first. I right. was too, too shy to do that.
2: <laughs> yeah, that, that's another level, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're barely even out of school. You've, you already have a literary agent. You're learning about PR, so I think this is setting us up for what happens to you later in life. And you're getting this validation, of whether it's external or internal, it doesn't really matter. It's really nice to be able to say I'm published and by a reputable publisher. This is great. And then, then you get your job in advertising. It's like all the ducks are lining up for you. So where do you go? Where are you working in advertising?
0: So my advertising partner and I, we worked together uh, in school and mm-hmm. we got hired together at BBDO New York, which okay. is a pretty established advertising agency and it was our dream job we were really stoked about it Mm -hmm. and we started as junior advertising or junior art directors and about mm, three months three or four months into the job i was like okay like we're working some late nights like the work isn't super exciting I'm not super jazzed about it, but I heard if I just keep my head down and like mm-hmm. keep plowing through, I'll eventually work my way up to, you know, senior art director, creative director, ECD, all that good stuff. I had like kind of this 10 year plan yep. for myself and the job was, it was my dream job. And it there, I was dealing though, behind the scenes with this weird, I don't know what to call it, ego thing where I was like, I got my dream job. I graduated top of my class. I don't know if I really like this job that much, but I don't want to seem ungrateful for it. So I'm just going to stick it through. Mm. And so I stayed for another four months past. And by that point, I was feeling super drained. And I was like, I think I made the wrong choice. (laughs) But it was really hard to verbalize that. I only Mm -hmm. told my best friends about it because I didn't want to seem ungrateful.
2: Right. Okay. So you and your partner were hired to work as a team together. Mm -hmm. Uh, So are you the writer or the art director?
0: So I went to the School of Visual Arts and both of us were actually training to be art directors, but right. we worked together and I ended up being like the pseudo copywriter,
2: even though we were oh. both trained as art
0: directors. Very and interesting. I guess it, you know, from the outside looking in, the agency was probably like, great, two art directors, they can do double the work in terms of producing graphics and stuff. Yeah. So I did most of the copy, but we brainstormed on everything together.
2: Mm hmm. Okay, very, very interesting. Okay, so for people who don't understand advertising, it is fairly typical practice for them to hire two people at the same time because of chemistry. They just need to know you can work together. There's really no point to hire an art director and a writer that don't like each other because it's going to be a (laughs) terrible partnership. And I had my own little stint in advertising, so I know what it feels like on the inside. So this is fascinating. You study advertising. You have all these design and art-making skills and lettering skills. So you're bringing a lot to the table for them to say, okay, Lauren, we want you to work on the words part of it, right? So I can see how this could be very stifling for you. Now, conversely, I worked in advertising as an art director when I got out of school, and I felt ill-equipped to work in the ad industry because I studied graphic design. So th- really? I didn't even have an ad book, yeah. And so I got thrust into these positions, and they were giving me bigger and better jobs. I'm like, shoot, I'm moving really fast on a, on a path that I'm not sure I want to be at. So you had your ECD fast-track 10-year plan. I was just like, uh, let's make money. Let's see what we can do with this. And it, it didn't feel right, even though all kinds of wonderful things were happening for me. Now, I was working at a fairly small uh, Seattle-based agency. You were working at one of the bigger – BBDO is big deal in New York. Yeah. Major mm-hmm. market, right? So you're probably like one of what? How many How many employees there at BBDO? I
0: think there were like 700 people yeah, there. Yeah,
2: huge. <laughs> I
0: didn't meet everybody like we rarely left our floor yeah yeah
2: so you were the, the the new junior art directors coming into town doing the work so four months in what gets you out of BBDO
0: Well, so four months in, I still stayed. Oh, Um, you still
2: stayed, okay.
0: (laughs) Four months in, it was the first time I ever told a friend that, like, I don't think I like my job. Mm -hmm. And that was really comforting to just have someone else listen to me and to be able to say it out loud. And I just had that gut feeling, too. You know, we were junior ADs, so that means we were putting mood boards together, working on pitches, like kind of doing the grunt work. Hard work. But I I knew what to Mm -hmm. expect. And, you know, I'm an optimist and – in ad school, you got to come up with whatever ads you wanted for whatever right. client you wanted. And it was instantly approved because, right. like, you're doing everything. And it's not like I thought it was going to be like that. I wasn't that naive. But the day in, day out, like 9 to 5 or I guess more like 9 to 7 of the agency life just wasn't really filling my tank up. And so I'd go home, you know, all, all, all the while this was happening, me questioning my job at the beginning – I'm working on daily dishonesty stuff for the book on the side, so I'd go home from my ad job and letter and mm-hmm. design stuff I really liked to make, and I was I kind of was living this like dual life. Um, I was working all the time, but like I think most college graduates in New York are working all the time post graduation, mm-hmm. and yeah, I told my friend, and it was it was validating, and so I I stayed and I told myself four months wasn't long enough to really right. know it's if true it was right yes and you know i both of my parents would probably back me up on that like how could you know in four months right. um so eight months uh four months four months went by again so total of eight months and at that point i was like okay it's almost been a year nothing has changed um mm-hmm. the only variable in the situation to change is going to be me and it felt really scary to admit that, to be like, okay, I can't change the agency structure. I can't change the hours we really work. I can't change that we get briefed at 4 p.m. and have to stay till 8 sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what I ended up doing was I still tried to talk myself into staying. I was like, okay, I'll just do another four months. And luckily, though, I had coffee with one of my friends and mentors, Justin Genack. He runs the site Working Not Working. Mm-hmm. He found, co-founded it. And he used to work in advertising and then he started down his entrepreneurial path. And I told him, I was like, you know what? I really don't like the job, but it it was my dream job. I'm just going to stay for a year so it doesn't look bad on my resume. Right. I just, I don't want. You're such a
2: responsible person, my God. Look at you. (laughs) Like, well, this is not going to look good on the resume.
0: I've got like my, I just had a realization last night. I feel like I Asian parent myself, where I have my like angel devil, (laughs) where it's like my wild and free artist creativity, and then I've got like my dad on my shoulder. Love you, dad. (laughs) (laughs) But I do it to myself. It's not even my parents telling me these things. Anyways, I said, okay, a year. And he looked at me, and like without missing a beat, he was like, but if you know you don't want to work in advertising and you don't like it, why does your resume matter? And I had like this light bulb moment. Yes. Whoa. And I was like, whoa, that's a really good point. But, you know, me being in my first job, not really having much of a resume, I didn't think about it like that. So getting that outside perspective from someone who had walked the walk, you know, he was in advertising for about 10 years. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah. He he went to my school. He presented in my ad class, like my sophomore or junior year. And I loved his work. And we ended up meeting. We had a chance meeting again. Mm -hmm. I was... This is such a wild story i was interning in spain for the summer at an advertising agency and my partner and i won a contest and the agency it was uh low end partners so still a big agency network we won a contest as interns and we got to go to the Cannes advertising festival Mm -hmm. like with with our creative this
2: is uh are we jumping around in the timeline here yeah you're pre 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 video right yeah, okay, so BD you're you're like, in school. You're doing an internship. Is this like uh, after your junior year or something? Yep, after my junior okay, year. The okay. summer between Wow, year and okay. Year. Keep going. Keep going.
0: Yeah, I was gunning down the advertising path. Yeah. I was doing all the right things. Yeah. Uh, and so it led me to this chance encounter again with Justin. Uh, he, I saw him at like one of the after parties when we were in France. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's Justin Genak. And I had had like six glasses of rosé at this point. And okay. so I went up to him and just started – complimenting his work i was like i love your work so much i really like this project and this project and it's so cool how you came up with this one and i'm really glad he just didn't think of me as this weird blabbering drunk person coming up to him he was super flattered and Mm. he gave me his card and he followed up with me later that summer and uh we kept talking and now he's one of my mentors
2: (laughs) beautiful okay okay like i gotta get back in the timeline okay
0: yeah sorry jumped around uh,
2: yeah so you decide look, the responsible Asian thing to do is to work for this agency for years, so it looks good on the resume, the LinkedIn profile is nice and tight. Yes. At what point, where where does this jump happen and and what's the next move for you?
0: So after that conversation with Justin, Mm -hmm. that was pretty pivotal for me. I was like, yeah, if I don't want to work in advertising, why does the resume matter? So that's what really started getting things into motion. I was like, okay, I've got this, you know, kind of side thing going on with lettering. I've got validation that... I got a book deal. I'm doing freelance work on the side. Like, people seem to like my work. Maybe I could do that full. Like, I could work for myself. I could do lettering. I had seen people like Jessica Hish and Dana Tanamachi yep. and John Tino do these like primarily type based portfolios, yes. and I was like, okay, so other people are doing it. If they can do it, like maybe I can do it too. Right. Right. But in my immediate circle you know, we were less than a year out of school. I didn't have any friends who were freelancing full-time yet. So I didn't have anyone close to me who was like walking the walk, Mm -hmm. but having, just having those other design idols were helpful to me. Mm -hmm. And so after that conversation with Justin, I started getting my ducks in a row. I made a separate portfolio like that had all my lettering, not none of my ad work. And I started reaching out to agents to represent me. And like, I Everyone always asks me about this too. I was yeah, 22 at the time and I didn't know that getting an agent was a big deal. I just saw that John and Jessica and Dana all had agents and right. I was like, well, if they have agents then maybe that's one of the things that I should do in order to like get to where they are. Right. And I just cold emailed, I don't know, 30 or so agents. I went to all of my favorite designers, portfolios, clicked on their contact link and saw who was repping them. Mm -hmm. And I did it with no hesitation. I didn't know it was hard to get an agent. I didn't know it was a big deal. And I heard back from a couple and I ended up signing with an agent right as I was about to leave my ad job. Mm -hmm. That's Uh, very
2: cool. So you have a literary agent and you have an artist rep agent. Yes. Wow. Okay. And you're all of 22 at this time.
0: Yes. The hardest part of that whole transition was breaking the news to my ad partner that I was not right. Going to you're, you're
2: abandoning your friend.
0: It was heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, he. He understood it was probably a hard conversation for him, but he said he understood and we're still friends. And he, he and I went to RECd together who had hired us and broke the news. And Mm -hmm. even he was like, I remember his first reaction was like, Oh, like, but I just hired you guys. Right. Right. And then he, and then he was like, go out, go out there and do your thing. And he actually ended up hiring me for some projects Mm. a couple of years later. So I thought I was going to be like blacklisted from the creative industry, any advertising stuff. But yeah. that turned out not to be true. It turned out it turns out that creative people are generally on other creative people's teams. Like we're all rooting for each
2: other. Generally speaking, I, I want to take a moment to point out something here mm-hmm. that you can you can uh, assume a lot about a person and their character when you go to quit and your former boss hires you. That says a <laughs> lot about how you handle it yourself and how 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 you built a relationship. Because I gotta tell you, people quit on me before they didn't do it well.
1: I'm going to tell you,
2: they're kind of like, I'm out of here. See ya. And it was like, wow, OK, all right. I'm not going to go out of my way to hurt you in the world, but it's not leaving a great feeling. Right. And whereas some people will come in and say, boss, I, I got an incredible opportunity. I know this sucks. I know you just hired me. You put a lot of faith in me and I want to finish up any of my obligations. So I'd love to give you my two weeks notice. But if you need more or less from me, I'm totally flexible. I want to do right by you. And that's really how you quit. And you can tell. Okay, so for, for all you young people or like, the world is opening up, just remember all the people who, who took a chance on you, mm-hmm. right? Now, you got a great position. Of course, you, you, you graduated at the top of your class, but that's not always the case with everybody. Somebody somewhere took a chance on you. And it's horrible because when, when there's turnover in an agency, it costs them money to get a new person in mm-hmm. that's going to fit. And, and there's a reason why they hire you as a partnership between you and your partner, and and now they have to figure that out. So I got to ask you about your friend, uh, your your art director friend who stayed behind. Is he still in the industry?
0: He is still in the industry. OK, so he found uh, out
2: what he wanted to do as well.
0: Yeah, no, he, he always knew he wanted to do the ad path. He's, okay. he's so smart. And he ended up staying without me. And they didn't immediately find him like a new partner. He yep. just paired up with some other people who were already yep. in the agency, either freelancing or who had lost partners as yes. well. Because there's going to be turnover wherever yep. you go. So. It, while it does suck, I'm sure they're capable of filling the gaps when needed, yeah. um, especially for a big agency. But, yeah, he he actually messaged me, I think, about a year ago, mm-hmm. and he was like, I didn't really know who else to tell, but, like, you know, my – I don't know where he's working now. He ended up going to Droga 5 after mm-hmm. BBDO, I believe, so he's mm-hmm. he's done quite well, and I don't know where he is now, but – he was working on a creative project uh, for Adidas, I think. Mm-hmm. And they ended up winning uh, a Can Lion, which was our goal when yeah, we were in that's, advertising. That's a big deal. That was the big one. Yeah. And he was like, he's like, I know you're not in the industry anymore. Right. But like, I wanted to share this with you because I thought you'd be excited and proud. And I was so excited and proud of
3: him. Yeah.
2: Okay. Wow. Okay. This is good. You guys have found both <laughs> your calling. Okay. If you're joining us right now, I'm talking to Lauren Holmes. She's a Detroit-based a uh, letter designer and self-described Cheeto lover, she studied advertising in New York at the School of Visual Arts, and she lives, uh, like I said, mentioned in Detroit. She runs online workshops and creative boot camps, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Okay, so let's fast forward. Uh, it's it's okay. eight, eight years later. Where wow, you're doing what you're doing. You have your body of work. I noticed that because uh, I, I watched your Skillshare class on chalk lettering. Chalkboard. Oh, right.
0: That was that's such an old class. I'm almost <laughs> a little embarrassed that that's what you watched.
2: <laughs> well, I have to look. I have to look at, to see how you you teach. And, and the thing that I want to really talk to you about, though, is this other course that's on your site. I, I believe it's called Passion to Paid, and it's a six part creative course. Did I get that right?
0: I was like, hmm, six parts. I guess so. Uh, I, 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 I took a
2: copy from your website, so we'll have to trust that. Okay. <laughs> the thing I want to talk to you about the most, the most. Is module five, and I'm sorry if I'm putting you on the spot because you may have authored it a while ago, and I don't even remember the things I've made. Okay, so but I'm going to ask you this because this is the part that interests me the most is the business part. Mm-hmm. Uh, module five is called business basics, and it says here this module will set you up with knowledge and confidence to manage your first freelance client project. If if inquiries start hitting you in your inbox after launching your project, so let's talk about that. Now, the internet. I should say on social media, it does feel like there are a ton of hand lettering artists. Like everywhere you look on Instagram, oh, yeah, right? Oh my, it blew up. Yes, and it's it's made for it because it's visual. I can get an idea, like unlike an illustration where I could just look at it. And some of them are non-narrative. If you if you write a phrase, so it's it's like it has the power of those uh, quote accounts where they pull daily inspiration but it has the power of design and illustration put in. So it's kind of like Instagram was made for people who are good (laughs) at hand lettering. Okay. So it's blown up. Is, is there still an opportunity for me as a hand lettering artist to still make it? What's your take on that? I know you wrote a blog post on it. That's why I'm asking.
0: (laughs) I believe. Yes. I will. Again, my, my pragmatic side, it's, the market is arguably more saturated yes. now like objectively it just yes, is. It is but i still think that there's plenty of room for people to carve out a space for themselves either through their artistic style or their the topics they letter about or the, like their niche like there are hand lettering artists like john contino is a really great example he does stuff with like espn and sports and his style is a little more masculine and grungy and then you've got someone like dana who started with chalk and it's a little more feminine like there are plenty of different niches within the niche of, of hand lettering mm-hmm. that I think people can still come into because especially coming from an ad background, like art and copy, like you were saying, hand lettering is this really powerful thing. And so yeah. I don't think that way of communication is going to go away anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's still very possible. I will say that I feel like people say this about the, like the stock market, but I did get into lettering like right as it was blowing up, so yeah. I definitely got in at an opportune time. Right. And so I can't say with certainty like you can do exactly what I did uh, to a T here in 2020, and you'll get the exact same results. Right. But I think that we have to believe too, if you're passionate about hand lettering or anything, that it is possible to carve out your space there and build your business. Because if you're Operating from that mentality, you're going to work harder and you're going to just go farther, in my opinion.
2: Yeah. So the way that I think about that is Mm -hmm. it does feel very saturated. But I also think about how there are so many blank canvases yet to be Mm -hmm. scribed on, right? Like I look at this background that you've painted and it it puts you in a place and it, it puts it gives me a vibe. Now, if this were a restaurant, a hotel lobby or something, I'm like, oh, this is really cool. Conversely, like I, I get to travel a little bit because of what I do with public speaking. And I see them buying horrific pre-made vinyl cut you know, wallpaper or something. and It's like, my God, that's a job for a lettering artist. You could have an original one of a kind piece of art here that totally captures who you are and what you stand for. But instead, I suppose the interior designer specs something out. Oof right? So there's still a lot of canvases to be covered. That's a
0: really, that's a really good point. I was also going to add too that as hand lettering has, or anything has grown in popularity, the audience for it grows because it becomes more known. Like my, my aunt and her coworkers might know what hand lettering is now because they've seen it on Instagram. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, it was more of a, like, if you were in the design world, you knew what it was, but now it's become a little bit more mainstream. So as, as lettering has gotten more popular I do think that the idea of adding lettering to like you said a hotel lobby or design projects or just new canvases Mm -hmm. is also expanding I don't know if it's at the same rate that like people are joining the hand lettering industry but I think the opportunities have also expanded
2: Mm -hmm. so what can one person do today to start to rise above because I always believe the cream will rise to the top right so what what can you do? I'm it's let, let's say it's 2018. I'm done with school. I start putting together my hand lettering portfolio. And it's good. It's got its own style. What are the tips uh, that you can pass on to somebody who's doing that to get noticed?
0: My best advice is, well, of course, hone your lettering skills, but you don't need to be the best technical letterer to rise to the top. I'm a big believer in point of view and creative voice can help you stand out faster than just sheer technical skill can. I remember when lettering was first getting popular on Instagram. Um, I joined Instagram in like 2013. There were lots of, you know, g- just more generic words layered on top of photos, things like, you know, a photo of a forest that said like adventure or something like right. that, or like love or hello. And there's right. nothing wrong with d- making those things, but they're, they aren't saying anything. There's no point of view. There's not anyone who's going to look at that and be like, yeah, I agree with that. Or like, that's so me because it's just a heart with the word love. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I was able to, I don't know, I always consider it like poor rocket fuel on my career from the get go. And this was, I want to say unintentional, but I'm sure there were some like marketing and just like intuitive things I had going on behind the scenes. With my passion projects, these personal – these series of personal work like Daily Dishonesty where I was saying something about making commentary about my own life, I didn't realize that was going to attract an audience of people who also felt that way or who could relate to it. And so that got my work shared organically in a way that I think if I had done a project even in the same volume of pieces as Daily Dishonesty, there were probably 100 by the end of the project – but they had just been phrases or song lyrics, things that didn't really have a point of view or were kind of disjointed. I don't think I would have gotten that same buzz. And so my best advice is, yes, on your lettering skills, but also start figuring out what you want to say. Like, like you just said, lettering is really powerful, especially with any social media, particularly Instagram, because it's so visual, because you get to communicate a message and it gets to be artistic. And so figure out those topics that you want to talk about or figure out, you know, and this honestly has a lot to do with like, you have to do a little soul searching and figure out who you are and what you want to say as well. It's a good, good holistic uh, exercise. But Mm -hmm. yeah, pick a pick a point of view or figure out what you want to say. And that to me is the fastest way to break through all the noise.
1: Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Lauren Hom. If you're a small business owner, this is for you. Because running a business is just plain hard sometimes. Endless to-do lists, employees to take care of, and your ever-present bottom line. So first of all, kudos to you for staying on top of it. Now, I want to tell you about Gusto. Gusto built an easier and more affordable way to manage payroll, benefits, and all that other really exciting stuff you love to do. They help over 100,000 businesses with tasks like automated payroll tax filing, simple direct deposits, free health insurance administration, 401ks, onboarding tools, you get where I'm going here. You name it, Gusto does it, and they keep it easy. They also really care about the small business owners that they work with, and I can attest to that because I happen to use Gusto for my own business. True story. Their support team is attentive and helpful, and since money can be tight right now, you'll even get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com future and start setting up your business today. You'll see what I mean when I say easy, because it really is. Again, that's three months of free payroll at gusto.com slash future. Welcome back to our conversation with Lauren Hom.
2: Now, within the larger family and umbrella of design, there are many sub- specialties that you can get into like hand lettering and I think hand lettering overlaps a little bit with typography I know mm-hmm. sometimes people use those two terms interchangeably but I'm, I used to <laughs> I'm a design nut so I'm going to say they're mm-hmm. not the same but typography uh, as it's described by many people's thinking made visual I can't think of a better description or a way to describe hand lettering so here's the thing if you're just pulling out other people's words and they're fairly generic and don't share your POV Then it's just other people's thoughts made visual. Mm. Okay, so here's where I think uh, you you may have an advantage over a lot of people, which is your background in writing and advertising. Mm -hmm. So the more you write, the more words that you're going to come up with, the phrases and expressions that are no one else's but your own. I, I had just recently interviewed Timothy Goodman, and I think his thing is he writes a lot. And I think that's one of the things. So I would say, I would encourage and correct me if I'm wrong. If you're a hand lettering artist, you don't have to have the technical skills. It's not about that necessarily. Although you should know what you're doing with letter forms. Mm -hmm. It's work on your writing craft, believe it or not. It sounds totally crazy because you're like, I'm an artist. But work on your writing, you know, make up habit and practice journaling and pull out your best ideas, pay more attention to the words that you're saying to friends and the funny little inside jokes that Mm -hmm. you might have. And see what hits, and you may walk into your own daily dishonesty. Yeah? That's
0: very true. Tim Tim's a really great example of someone, yeah, who is he basically turns his thoughts and writing into visuals, and that's he's been really successful with that. Mm-hmm. And I actually before this interview was listening to some other episodes you had done, and I heard you interviewed uh, Adam J K. He's also a great example yes. of that. Yes, he is. Yeah. Um, you also interviewed my friend uh, Joey Cofone. We went to school together. Oh, the founder well, wow, of parenting. look at that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh my gosh, I love Joey.
0: Small world. Yeah, Joey's his
2: his episode has done really well because it's such a heartwarming story, right?
0: You know what? I learned stuff about Joey in that episode, and we've been friends <laughs> for <a long> time.
2: <laughs> Great. I, I take that as the biggest compliment because I try yes. and find the little stories, the nook, nooks and mm-hmm. crannies. Okay. Yeah. Adam JK is also a friend that I, I met on the speaking circuit and he does. I, I was going to mention him too, but I, I love the way he thinks and his sense of humor yeah. is like half brooding, you know, and kind of very honest talk. Like, okay, yeah. it sucks sometimes. And let me just tell you, it doesn't get better. Okay. So that's his thing. But he he likes to describe his work as like, I just try to do as little work as possible. It's just a number <laughs> two pencil and that's it. So I I, I consider him a, a really great a like writer, thinker and a personality. But he doesn't want to work on the craft at all. He's like anti craft in a way. And that becomes his own style too, right? Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's it's intentional.
2: Yes, it is intentional. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I have to talk to you more a little uh, more about the business stuff. So, okay. Okay. So I want to talk to you about the biggest, if you you can share with us, the biggest hand lettering assignment you've gotten, whether it's a mural, a one off, a commercial thing, like in terms of client and in terms of budget, what is it and can you tell us?
0: Oh, I should have. I like need to go check. I was like, did I sign an NDA for this? <laughs> <laughs> there was some work that I'm not sure if it ran or not. Okay, I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna think of the, the second biggest one then because oh, this one's so good. But I th-
2: wait, wait, wait. Can you describe it in a way that you're not disclosing anything? This spe- specifics that that don't get you in trouble with your NDA. Just a category, maybe.
0: Yes, um, I would say. <laughs> The One of the biggest, like, tech companies that all of us create our designs (laughs) on. Okay, be careful. Be careful.
2: Okay. I get it. Big tech company. Okay. Yes. Creative tech company. Yes.
0: Uh Uh Uh-huh. And it was a holiday campaign I did with them
2: last year.
0: And I believe that the budget was $35,000. Ooh. So that was, like, a nice, juicy one. I'd say that I get... I'd say I get one like multi five figure project a quarter or something. That's like Mm -hmm. a a, in a good year, Mm -hmm. maybe a couple Mm -hmm. throughout the year. Okay. Um, I started my career doing like smaller things, like editorial, like um, magazine spreads and covers, and it just kind of started. I think as with anything, it just grew into bigger and bigger things. Like I was so hungry for those small assignments back in 2013 Mm -hmm. and now it feels really cool to be able to like pass on smaller jobs if I'm too booked or give other people opportunities because midway through my career I found myself really stressed out because I was taking on too many projects because I felt like oh all of these amazing opportunities I should take them but I was stretched too thin and now I realize that oh if I open my schedule up and give myself creative breathing room, not only am I happier and a better artist, I'm creating opportunities and opening the door for other people who were where I were. I was, when right. I was starting out, and so that right. feels really good. The cyclical kind of design career thing.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so okay, I went to, this this really big job for a creative tech company <laughs> that we all use. Um, was this by chance done at a conference for a conference? Was it being used at a conference by any chance? I do not think so. Okay. These were supposed to be All for right. commercials. I'm trying to like figure I, it out. I'm like, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like Sherlock here. Wait, I've seen this. Okay, fine. I'm uh, okay. To think.
0: Another another big project I can say with certainty, yes. um, this is actually earlier on in my career too. I was so excited about it. I did a bunch of chalk lettering for Samuel Adams, a commercial that was running nationally here. In The US and that was like twenty five thousand dollars. That was my mm-hmm. first like multi five-figure project and mm-hmm. I like could not believe it
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, So that was really cool.
2: Was this are you being hired by the agency?
0: You know this project was actually this is such a crazy story this project a friend referred me she was like she was based in Brazil and for some reason there was an issue with them working with an international artist for like payment reasons or whatnot And so she referred me to them, and they ended up hiring me. Um, And so it was through an agency, but it was through a referral with a friend. And so I kind of think of that as like, yeah, creative person karma. Like I try to pass opportunities on to other people too because it does no one any good if the the agency or the client can't find someone to do the job. And so every project I pass on, I kind of just think that I'm putting my – putting my internet karma out there and maybe someone will pass me a project in the future.
2: Right, right, right. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so this is a really big job, $35,000. How long does it take you to do this thing?
0: That project was actually fairly fast. Mm -hmm. We knocked that one out, I believe, in three weeks.
2: Okay. Now, when you say we, are there people who fill it in for you or is it just the proverbial we, like, as a company? It's
0: kind of in between. So this this was a year, a little over a year ago. And Mm -hmm. so... It was, well, actually, no. It is a proverbial we, but also also a real we. I, I've been saying we for such a long time because mm-hmm. I always refer to, like, me and my agent, even yes, though yes. separate entities. Right, but right. Uh, I have one full-time designer that works with me here in Detroit. Uh, she's obviously not here anymore. We've been working remotely right. uh, since about March. It right. feels so weird that I haven't seen her.
3: Mm-hmm. But,
0: yeah, I, I started outsourcing some work. Mm, I had an intern back in 2015. But anyways... Now I have a full-time designer and yeah, I will maybe do the first rough sketch and then I'll have her go ahead and kind of build that out and refine it. And we'll, you know, I'm kind of the intermediary between also send stuff to the client mm-hmm. and be the creative director. Yeah. But I had a big block when I was, I was like, I'm, I would love some help, but it felt wrong to have anyone else's hands touch my work right. for the longest time. Right. And then I realized that that narrative was just holding myself back because Fine artists have assistants all the time. Like design studios have people creating work for them. Like the first person I thought of was Louise Feely, who runs a small studio in New York. She is she always has one or two designers working with her, even though all the work is coming out under her name. And so perhaps I shot myself in the foot or was nervous because all the work was coming out under my name versus like a studio. And uh-huh. I do technically have a studio name, but I felt weird about it for a while. And now it's great. It feels really mm. nice to be able to employ someone else and to, again, expand creative opportunity while also being able to, like, ease up on my workload a little bit. I'm still doing a lot of stuff, but it feels nice to have that help now. And now it's completely normal. I feel great about it.
2: Mm. Okay. I think that feeling that you have is actually very, very common within the creative space, right? It really <laughs> is. It's like, oh. Uh, what am I doing? And I remember my friend Kyle Cooper telling me that Paul Rand, because Paul Rand was his mentor and his teacher at, at uh, Harvard, or Yale, I'm sorry, at Yale, and he would call him and say, Kyle, are you a telephone designer? And, and it's like, what do you mean a telephone designer? Like, you just phone it in. You just tell people what to do. And that kind of bothered him. Like he, And at the level in which he was working at, he had dozens and dozens of people running projects and doing research and doing the mechanics but he was going to be the guy who's like this is the idea i'm going to write the idea and then i have to go and sell this thing to the client and that's its own art in itself so mm-hmm. this thing that you got over uh, it, it maybe you were tortured over it but what was the big moment of clarity the epiphany for you to say like you know what it's okay this is in my head and this is was it just knowing that other artists do the same thing
0: it was helpful to look at, yeah, other industries or, I mean, creative industries that weren't necessarily hand lettering. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, a chef who opens a restaurant has other cooks working right. with them, right? right. Like right. a fine artist has production, sculptors have production assistants, photographers, like my, my designer actually studied photography at, uh, at SCAD and, we were, we had a conversation and for some reason, uh, Annie Leibovitz came up
3: mm-hmm. and
0: she was like, Oh yeah, like I heard that Annie Leibowitz just like someone else will set up the shoot and do the lighting and like get everything ready. And then Annie comes in and like snaps the photo. And so right. looking at other creative areas and seeing how the work gets divvied up was helpful for me because it was outside of what I was immediately doing and made it feel more normal. Like you would not expect to go to a restaurant and care if the sh- if the head chef didn't prepare every single element of your meal. You wouldn't care. You just want the delicious dish and you want it in a timely manner because if one yeah. person was preparing all the food, even if they're like quote unquote the best, you know, the master at the craft, your meal's going to come out in like 4 hours.
2: Right, right. So the, here's the thing. And I, I'm just so grateful that you brought this up because that was another way of looking at it, that if we just look outside of what you think the industry is doing, and I'm, I guarantee you the industry is doing something different than you think anyways. But if you look outside in the real world, you see this, like when you go to, I think it's called Bola, like Bobby Flay's restaurant. You don't expect Bobby Flay in the back. He's not even in town. He's busy taping something in Japan, most likely. Mm-hmm. What you do care about is that it follows his process and his technique, that it's indistinguishable if he had made it himself. Right? So that's the that's idea. So you have responsibility, Lauren. So when somebody pays you $35,000, they, I, I believe this, they don't care if 100 monkeys made it. It just needs to pass your test. And you have to be the gatekeeper of quality and say like, yes. That feels like it came from us, and it would be indistinguishable, and then you're fine. Now, if it doesn't meet your standard and you put it out there, over time people are going to start to feel like, oh, she's phoning it in. The standards at the restaurant are dropping.
3: Mm-hmm. You
2: know, it needs new management. Those kinds of things. So fantastic there. A bunch of things I want to follow up with you on the agent. Because people don't understand how this works. And I hope everybody that's listening is getting this healthy dose of like, oh my God, this is what it takes to be a professional lettering artist, right? Because it's a little (laughs) different. It's a little different than what you think. Your agent, if I may assume, is the person negotiating these inquiries for you, with you, and bidding on projects and making sure you're protected. Is that right?
0: Yes, I call him my business bodyguard. Yes,
2: yes. And if you have a good one, and most agents that are still around, And have a good roster of artists that they work with already know what they're doing in business. Now, when you guys are sitting around and this tech company I can't name, the project comes in, oh, we're kind of excited about this. Does he ask you your gut feeling about what it should be? Or does he just say like, Lauren, I think it's going to be this. And you're cool. Go get it.
0: I will say the latter. Um, He's definitely the driving force behind all coming up with the estimates. He'll always run it by me. Yes. Um, he'll say, here is the budget I'm thinking. Here's the proposed timeline, either by us or the client. Yep. Like here are all the details. What do you think?
3: Mm-hmm. And like
0: nine out of ten times I'm like, great, send as is. Mm-hmm. There might be a project where I'm like, oh that might be a little tight with my schedule. Right. Or right, right. ooh, like, you know, right now, since I'm busy, like I don't want to take any projects that are under 5K or something like that. Yep. But for the most part, I let him run with that because mm-hmm. for me as transitioning from, you know, solo freelancer, not quite sure what I'm doing to being like a business owner now has been an interesting shift. And so deferring decision-making to other people has been something I'm still learning like every day, but it frees up my thinking. I don't want to have to think about every single inquiry that comes in or every single budget. And that's what I have him for. Yeah. So I usually let him run with that because that's his zone of genius. That's an yeah. area of expertise and that's not mine. Right. And I know plenty of designers who are successful, don't have an agent like negotiating, like like the business aspect. I like knowing how to do it, but I don't want to be the one to do it myself. It's yeah. just so much easier when I have someone else doing it.
2: There's a lot of reasons why. And you say, you know, a lot of people do it themselves and are good at it. It's like, I need to talk to those people because I do not <laughs> I don't know many people like that, to be honest. I really don't. Because artists oftentimes undervalue their work. And it's hard not to because it's very subjective. It's like, oh, well, it's a, it's two weeks worth of work and I, I'm thinking about buying a new car and this would be great. So I'll lower the price a little bit. But your agent is totally objective. Mm-hmm. And their main job, their main job is to protect you and get the maximum amount of money that you're due. Just yes. like that. And so and that they can sit there and argue with the client like, no way, Lauren is not going to do this. <laughs> like she's done three jobs just like this for twice the budget. So forget about it. And and they could do that and feel good about themselves, right? It's because you're protecting somebody else. You work for someone else and you have to protect their best interests.
0: Well, I was going to say, yeah, it's like you're when you're pricing your own work, you're like negotiating with yourself before yes. you even negotiate with the client. And yeah. That is dangerous because we, the same way we have a tendency to be extra hard on ourselves, like emotionally or about things in life, we – I don't know why we knock ourselves down a peg with pricing. Maybe because we want the job so badly or because we think it's what's going to please the other party. Yeah. When in reality, yeah, if the project's worth that, it's, it's worth that. Um, and sometimes – just being able to ask like there's so much anxiety around just said pressing send on the email (laughs) that has your estimate
2: (laughs) that's the slowest finger press you've ever seen like
0: oh yeah uh, I
2: don't want to push them by what if they hate me (laughs) like
0: it's it's funny like we're talking about you know five thousand thirty five thousand dollar projects right now but when I first started freelancing I'm a little embarrassed to say this but I've talked about it before so I'm fine now Mm -hmm. when I first started freelancing in college I didn't know what to charge. Yeah. I didn't have any friends who were doing it. Right. I didn't really dive into, I don't know if there was as many resources online yet. Yep. And so I was interning at a bowling alley at the time in school okay. <laughs> and I was getting paid $10 an hour. Right. So when I started freelancing, I was like, there we go. That's my point of reference. I'm going to charge $10 an hour for freelance design, which right. you and I can sit here and tell your audience that that's way too low right. to charge. And so I started with that and the way that I built my confidence pricing on my own, and this is back when I was pricing hourly too because I didn't know any better, uh, was I, every new product I got, I would just add a dollar to my hourly rate.
2: Oh, nice. Okay.
0: <laughs> so that was my own like self-generated system for slowly inching my prices up. And every new project I got, the client would be like, okay, cool, $11, $12, $13 an hour. And eventually by senior year, I had worked my way up to I think 30 or $35 an hour. And I was feeling on the top of the world. I bet you were. But here's the thing, this is why relationships and talking with people and being open is so important. I had dinner with a friend, we were seniors, she was in the design program, I was in the ad program. Both of us were freelancing on the side with design stuff. She was taking Paula Sher's uh, portfolio class. Mm-hmm. And I told – I was telling my friend, kind of bragging actually. I was like, right. oh, yeah, I'm working on this project, you know, $35 an hour, no big <laughs> deal. <laughs> and she she looked at me and she was like, oh. And I was like, what? And she was like, well, um, Paula said that, you know, we're seniors at SVA, we're in New York, like yeah. we're basically profession- – we're almost professionals, like yeah. – Paula said that we should be charging a minimum of 50 an hour yes. and my entire world that I had built up this $1 right. an hour more per project just shattered mm-hmm. and had I not had that conversation with that friend, I wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. I'd be charging $36 an hour.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So my next project that came in, I charged 50 and the client was like, yep. And I was like, wow, yeah. that's crazy. <laughs>
2: Okay, so I want to point something out here, and I'm kind of watching my time here because I have 12 more <laughs> minutes to talk to you. Okay, the, 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 the Lauren stock market is rising really fast. You're on top of the world, right? And what I want to point out to everybody is that I think it's healthier for our, our industry, w- whatever creative industry you're in, to talk about these kinds of things because when you know what's possible, it changes your whole concept of like, oh, my God. That's what, like somebody like you can can like I aspire to be that, and I should be able to charge that much too. So it's really interesting. There's a scene in Inception where Leo DiCaprio says to, to I, I forget who he says who he says this to, but he's like, "Do you know what the most dangerous thing in the world is?" And we're like, "What? Tell us, Leo, please, with those eyes, tell us an idea, because once an idea takes root in your brain, you can't get rid of it." Now, no spoiler alerts, but it's something that happens to his wife, right? So an idea is so powerful. The idea for you is it is possible, Lauren, to charge more. As a matter of fact, this is the minimum. And then you can go elsewhere. So on that, I have to ask you really quickly, because I really want to follow up this much more important thing, which is how much does a rep or an agent typically take? People need to know this.
0: Yeah, so industry standard is about 30%. That's Mm -hmm. like the, the solid old school agent standard. A lot of agents now are working on more of a sliding Scale depending mm-hmm. on the size of the project and what role they play. Because cre- the nature of creative work, even over the last seven years of my career, has changed so much. Like yeah. there are now speaking events, and there are now, you know uh, sponsored Instagram posts or Mm -hmm. brand partnerships. And these are not typical projects. And, and also the tradition, traditional agent model too, is that they, they were the gatekeeper for you getting to the industry or the clients and they'd go around and show your book and, you know, schmooze or whatever people did back in the, uh, back then. And now since there's social media and the internet, a lot of artists are generating their own leads just by being present online. And so there are lots of different like setups, but the arrangement I have with my agent is, it's typically thirty percent for like any big projects that yep. like an agency project, an ad campaign, yep. something like that. But speaking events, he only takes ten percent because it's just less to facilitate. Right. There might be some back and forth, headshots sent, blah blah blah, yep. blah, contracts. But there are so many different kinds of creative projects now, and I'm sure in the next ten years from now, there's going to be even more that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we work on a sliding scale.
2: Okay. So the, the, uh, that's fantastic. So I would assume smaller projects, smaller percentage, bigger projects, higher percentage. It mm-hmm. makes sense. It's, it's, it's not even worth it to take all that money because then it just disincentivizes you from even taking the gig in the first place.
0: Well, totally. I remember when I told my parents I was going to get an agent, they thought I was kind of nuts because they were like, why would you give away right. 30% of your income? Right. That's so stupid. <laughs> right. And what sold me, on, and to be honest, I had my hesitations at sure. first. That, that's a pretty big chunk, but I thought about it, and I was like, okay, 30%, like, if my agent can get double or triple the budget I would have asked for on my own, and do all the work, then they're going to pay for themselves. Plus, mm-hmm. they have a vested interest, like you mentioned, in getting me the maximum amount of money. Yes, Because they get a slice of that. It's not like they have a flat fee that they get, you know, $1,000 per project, regardless of how much it is. Right. So I liked that, that vested interest. And I knew that for me, I really didn't like managing my own projects. I'm terrible at project management. I don't like checking email. So having my agent as the business kind of arm and to keep everything running so I can really just, again, be in my zone of genius, making the art, being creative has been the best setup for me.
2: Yeah. Okay. Uh, re- real quickly, just less than 60 seconds because the big question is coming. So less Ooh. than 60 seconds. <laughs> um, about how many projects are you doing in a, given, in a given month? And what is, like we heard the high high end of the budget we heard like the minimum, which is about five K what's the average size commission that you're getting in terms of dollars and how busy are you on a given average month?
0: Man, it really varies Mm -hmm. month to month. I've been very lucky to say that I've never had like a month where there was no work. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, there's definitely been slower seasons, but I'd say on average I'm juggling anywhere between two to four projects. Mm -hmm. Um, I did mention 5K earlier. I wouldn't say that's my minimum. I'm flexible on my minimum depending on what it is. Okay. to get. I was telling people last year that that big project, $35,000, the lowest paid project I took in 2019 mm-hmm. was $400. Okay.
2: Don't get mad at me, don't get mad at me. <laughs> no, not mad at you. You get to choose if you <laughs> like you. it, you know. I, I, yeah, I it think was... it's even okay if you do it for $1. It doesn't matter, yeah. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Um, yeah. yeah, it was for it was for Elizabeth Warren's campaign, um, oh, and I really wanted to support for her for sure,
2: 100.
0: Get my work circulating through that uh, yes. through that audience, and so I tell people too. Yeah, like you just said, it's completely up to you. Yeah. I think that you should absolutely value your work. Um, but yeah, the average project I would actually say the average project that I get is about five to seven thousand um, dollars. Typically, I I'm at the point now where anything under Twenty five hundred three thousand. I might just pass to a, another friend yep. or someone I know yeah. because I used to think that having, you know, if I had five five if I had five thousand dollar projects, that was the same as one five thousand dollar project. But it is absolutely not. You are managing five streams of emails right. and you are. It's just so much more to consider. You're switching. It's when you tear and on you, does. man. It is. Just be careful mm-hmm. about that.
2: Okay. Yeah. Uh, the the big important question. Here <laughs> okay. we go. All right. You mentioned this before and I wrote it down and I know I have to ask you about this just that in the world of creative there is underrepresentation for people of color, minorities, uh non-binary people and especially women because we see in 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 the classes that I, when I was a student, about 50% are women. Yeah. And then when I'm a teacher, about 50% are women but in almost every creative aspect like where did all the women go but in lettering women dominate (laughs) or do i just imagine that because every almost every account i'm like wow that's dope woman another woman and then when i see like the students enrolled in your classes it's like all women so is it true is this at least one place on, on the creative stage where women just crush
0: I was going to say in terms of quantity of participants in mm-hmm. the lettering field, I would say yes. Okay. Similar to like when you were a student, half the students were women and mm-hmm. half men. But when you get to like the creative director roles or in the real world, you're like, where did all the women go? Right. In lettering, I'm not quite sure because the, the lettering artists I looked up to when I was just coming up in the industry were maybe 50-50. Like I mentioned Jessica, Dana, like. Yep. but there was also, you know, there was John Contino, um, Dan Cassaro was a big one for me, Jeff Rogers, Darren Booth. And so I actually, from my perspective, maybe because I was kind of in the ad design corner of the creative industry, I saw mostly male hand lettering artists mm. getting like the big jobs, like oh. the ones that like were aspirational. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure about it now. Um, I think that there's, there might be, who knows, something about like penmanship that women gravitate towards. Yes. I, yes. I actually have really shitty handwriting. Like Do regular you? handwriting, it's yeah. it's garbage. But yeah, I was good oh, at drawing drawing letters.
3: That's letter really forms.
2: interesting. Okay, so my, my wife's a graphic designer. <laughs> okay. And she started to learn hand lettering and she's wonderful at it. And her penmanship is horrible. Cause I thought <laughs> it, I, you know, it's a it's a bias. I think women have better handwriting than men, because men are slobs, right? But she has beautiful lettering skills and okay just handwriting, and I have wonderful handwriting, relatively speaking, and I have to make an effort to do the hand lettering thing.
0: I think people just have different natural inclinations and talents. One thing that mm-hmm. just came to mind about the disparity in uh, the field and genders is I was thinking about how in the traditional like agency world or the, in, in that creative industry where you might be working full time or have to work your way up, kind of like the reason people say like, what What is it, like 2% of women, creative directors are women? I forget what the percentage is, but it's low. It's very it's low. Single single digits. It's horrible. And in that regard, it might – like you see the disparity because there are all these invisible hands of sexism and racism and bias at play. Yes. But in the lettering world, because of social media and the internet now, I have seen a lot of women be able to kind of – myself included – sidestep the traditional like business world and just do your own thing, build your own business around your interests and build your own audience. And I haven't run into any barriers there because I'm doing my own thing. People are here for me. And I see a lot of female letterers be more entrepreneurial. They're making products. They are teaching courses. They're doing workshops. And so there are more avenues that open up, I think, when you have these like entrepreneurial female hand lettering artists. So in that regard... Maybe that's why you see a lot of successful female lettering artists on the internet, Mm -hmm. but there is no like, corporate lettering industry. So who knows what it would look like if we had like agencies of hand letterers.
2: Yeah. So maybe the idea is if you open it up to a democratic process where there are no gatekeepers and then we can see just talent rise to the top and we can live in that meritocracy. Mm. Now I know this sucks because I I just, I have to end it. Unfortunately I have to end this conversation. (laughs) It was wonderful, a wonderful to talk to you, to learn about your art and your, your point of view and hear your story. I applaud you and I'm encouraging you to continue to kill it and, and set that path for the the next generation of lettering artists. So Lauren Hom, thank you very much for doing this podcast with me.
0: Thanks for having me. Hey, this is Lauren Hom and you're listening to The Future.
1: Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash Chris and ask away. We read every submission, and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.